0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future.
1: This
2: is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and we thank you for joining us on the program today on our very first episode of 2024. Our first segment of the show turns the spotlight on the Islamic Republic of Iran and specifically on its collaboration with Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are both Sunni terrorist organizations while Iran is a Shia theocracy. And normally Sunni jihadis and Shia jihadis are at each other's throats over the various differences in their brands of Islam and in the way that they think the overall jihad should be carried out. But in this case, they have buried the scimitar and are working together under Iran's leadership. The Iranians have a remarkable ability to bring all manner of Islamic terrorists under their sway, even with groups that normally rival them. And one of the most effective strategies the Iranians use to bridge the divide is by focusing on a common enemy. And what better enemy for radical Islamists to attack than Israel? Targeting Israel does seem to be the key to Iran's collaboration with Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and we'll hear all about this in an interview with trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. Our second segment of this episode juxtaposes two very different nations, the United States of America and the African nation of Zimbabwe. We'll examine the stark contrast between these two countries and some of the foundational reasons for those differences in a report from Trumpet Rider and Zimbabwean national Rafaro Manyepa. The third segment will take a look at a piece of technology that is small but mighty, the semiconductor, also called microchips or integrated circuits. These have become essential parts of our high-tech world. They're vital to a constantly increasing number of commercial items, also industrial and consumer items, and military items as well. And the small nation of Taiwan plays a tremendously outsized role in the semiconductor industry. That's one reason why the tensions over Taiwan have such broad and deep geopolitical implications, which we'll learn all about in a report from trumpet writer Ezekiel Malone. And then our last word today takes a look at NFL legend Mike Ditka and a lesson from his leadership that is applicable to us all. So that'll be at the tail end of the episode today. And to begin now, we'll discuss Iran's collaboration with al-Qaeda and the Taliban. We've got trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic here for this. Thanks very much for being with us today, Mahilo. Thank you for, again, letting me be in the actual studio this time. Yeah, great to have you here with us in person. So to begin, could you just talk a little bit about the recent developments in Iran's collaboration with al-Qaeda and the
3: Taliban? Of course. Well, there is no shall we say, major explosion happening anywhere in the Middle East that is bringing in all these revelations. But a few smaller media outlets have been putting together some pieces from some earlier terror attack attempts. And we're getting a clear picture just how extensive Iran's collaboration with certain jihadi groups like the Taliban like al-Qaeda are. So on december twenty fourth, Intelli Times, which is an Israeli military intelligence blog, reported, that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, or Iran's paramilitary, uh, influencing other countries, uh, branch of the army, was uh, implicated in recruiting terrorists from Afghanistan, of all places, to uh, act as suicide bombers against Israeli targets worldwide. Mm. That wouldn't be too much of a surprise. Afghanistan, obviously, borders Iran. There's a lot of Afghani nationals in Iran. They're both run by Islamist terror regimes. But on the 27th, Iran International, which is an Iranian dissident paper, filled in some of the gaps, which shows why this is such a big deal. They specifically stated that uh, the Quds Force, which is almost sort of like the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps intelligence agency, was specifically collaborating with Al Qaeda and with the Taliban to conduct these attacks. One particular attack they zeroed in on was from November of 2022, when A Itzik Moshe, who is an Israeli national but living in the country of Georgia in in the Caucasus, had an attempted assassination against him by the Quds Force. And putting together some of the pieces, Iran International reported that al-Qaeda was involved. Those particular members that tried to attack him that were eventually apprehended by Georgian authorities were al-Qaeda members. And Iran International is saying they were also sponsored by the Quds Force. And from what Iran International reported, it looks like this recruiting of Afghans is happening in Afghanistan, is a lot more organized than people realized, and would have at the very least the consent of the Taliban and the direct support as well. The Taliban have an iron grip in the whole country of Afghanistan. There's no way the IRGC would be able to be recruiting like this without them giving them the green light. So we often hear about terror groups, of course, attacking Israelis Worldwide terror groups usually don't collaborate with each other like this. Uh, normally, they'll take solo responsibility of the attack and then go and start attacking other terror groups in competition. But reports like these from Intelli Times, from Iran International, just goes to show a lot of these groups, these pretty serious groups, are actually working together to attack. In this case, Israeli targets.
2: Yeah, so some really significant developments here. You know, you you just mentioned there how Sunnis and Shias, they're often uh, at each other's throats and not finding common ground to collaborate on. Could you talk a little bit about the media and how they generally characterize what you could call
3: inter-jihadi relations? Of course. Again, it's not like jihadis make too many friends with other partners. Usually, they're almost attacking each other as much as the Isra- Israel or the West. For example, when ISIS, uh, remember them, uh, w- <laughs> uh, decided to rampage through Iraq and Syria, Iran and the IRGC was actually going into Iraq fighting this group right. that wanted to make their own Islamist state, just like Iran. ISIS was Sunni. Iran is, of course, Shia. You even have when the Taliban takeover happened in 2021, A lot of analysts were looking at what was going on and saying Iran just has a new security threat to their doorstep. How is Iran going to respond? They better tread carefully. That was out of response to some skirmishes Iran and the Taliban regime had back in the 1990s when the Taliban massacred some Shiite villages and that sort of thing. So from the West, we could often look at the umbrella of radical Islam and think of it like scorpions in a jar. They're all mean. You put the scorpions in the jar, but when the handle handler doesn't have his hands sticking around, they're too busy trying to sting each other and go after each other. That's sort of the general, shall I say, lens that people look at these circumstances in.
2: Yeah, makes sense. So there's, uh, there's actually a lot more common ground between... Shia, Iran, and Sunni al-Qaeda and the Sunni Taliban than onlookers may think, especially in certain circumstances, such as if they, you know, are working against a common enemy. Could you discuss some other examples of Iran helping out these
3: supposed enemy groups? There are a couple of major, shall we say, converging of terror activities, of Uh, Attacks on the West that a lot of people don't actually realize as much starting with the Taliban We talked about them and their uh, skirmishes originally and to be fair They still are skirmishing at the border with petty disputes But the reason the Taliban are in power right now is because of Iran A lot of people don't realize that while the United States was in Afghanistan Iran was providing safe haven for Taliban terrorists Uh, The late General Qasem Soleimani, um, who was a bit infamous uh, years back for being uh, one of the global masterminds of Islamic terrorism, he actually visited Afghanistan in 2015 and promised the Taliban basically unconditional support in fighting the United States. You can look online and find photos of Taliban fighters with Iranian weapons. And even today, Iran and Afghanistan are still holding relations based off of treaties that were signed by previous regimes when they don't necessarily see each other as their best friends, but they're still interacting with each other diplomatically, which most countries in the world don't even do. Regards to Al-Qaeda, well, again, a lot of people don't know this. The current leader of Al-Qaeda, Saif al-Adil, is actually in Iran right now. Reports have been circulated of him staying in Iran more or less full time since 2022, and he's apparently been in and out of Iran back even in the 1990s before 9-11 happened. So Iran, of course, is arguably the most powerful terrorist state in the world, or the most powerful Islamist terrorist state anyway. When these groups like Al-Qaeda get chased out, when they need the safe haven, they all go to Iran and they all get training from Iran. They all get funding from Iran. When they come out back to wherever they're from and start doing whatever they're doing, maybe relations aren't the friendliest, but they're, they're still beholden to Iran. You can almost think of it as like a, a handler with with uh, really aggressive dogs. Maybe the dogs push their boundaries a little bit, but they're still attached by the leash to the handler. That's basically the lens, regardless of whether what religious differences they have, regardless of organizational differences they have. That is the lens that any terror attack in the greater Middle East, whether it's Sunni or Shia or whatever, has to be looked through.
2: So Iran really has a great deal of, of power over, uh, you know, many disparate groups that we wouldn't necessarily see at first glance that they're influencing. Really remarkable to have that laid out that way. For the, uh, for the last few minutes here, could you talk about the big picture of this story? Why is this something
3: that the Philadelphia Trumpet is watching so closely? Well, anytime we talk about Iran, a go-to Bible prophecy we go to is Daniel 11, verse forty which speaks of an end-time king of the South and a king of the North clashing. Uh, the rest of the prophecy shows this clash leads into World War III. And for decades, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Joe Flory, has pointed to Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, fulfilling the king of the South prophecy through its sponsor of terrorism, through its sponsor of proxy groups taking over other countries like what we're seeing in places like Iraq, and Syria, and even Africa, and that it would push specifically against the king of the North or Europe, this Western power that we expect to grow in a lot of global influence very, very soon. In that context, you could look at what Iran is doing. You could look at them as a geopolitical power, as a country pushing against another country. But they're not just another country, they're also a terrorist state. And time and time again, our coverage has focused on Islamic terrorism being a part of this push and that Iran would be king of this terrorism, that one way or another, all roads would lead to Tehran, maybe not all roads, but in in general, they would be the ones sponsoring this kind of terrorism. A lot of these groups like Al Qaeda, they're pretty infamous, but they're not really known for their connections with Iran. More and more evidence is showing just the opposite, that they actually are beholden to Iran, that they're just branches of tentacles that lead up to the the main monster, and that monster is Iran. And more and more people are coming to terms with it. More and more people are realizing that Iran is har- harboring al-Qaeda, that Iran is the power behind the Taliban, all-, all these other different groups. And to get rid of the problem, they have to go after Iran. And more and more, it's becoming clear, not just, again, to smaller media outlets, but to the world in general, that if they want to stop al-Qaeda going after the citizens, if they want to stop the Taliban, they have to go after the Cuz Force. They have to go after Iran.
2: We have an article in our October 2021 issue of the Philadelphia Trumpet. It's called With Enemies Like These, Who Needs Friends? It takes a a deep dive into the various prophecies that Mahilo just mentioned there. So for any listener who would like to better understand these prophecies and kind of the big picture of this situation, please check out our show notes at thetrumpet.com for today's episode, or you can just find that article directly there with enemies like these who needs friends. Well, thanks so much for being with us today, Mahilo. Thank you
3: for having me.
0: This is the voice of the Trumpet News
2: Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. You're listening to Trumpet Hour here on KPCG 101.3 FM. And for our next segment, we will juxtapose two nations, the United States and Zimbabwe. This segment examines the profound difference between these two countries and some of the foundational reasons for the differences, as we'll hear about in a report from trumpet writer Rafaro Manyepa.
0: What's the difference between developing and developed countries? For most people who've only lived in a developed country, there's a lot of guesswork involved. Even those who have visited a third world country have only a rudimentary understanding of the differences. Some of the differences are obvious. Hunger, poverty, and disease are most commonly found in third world countries. Poor infrastructure, despotic rulership, and inefficient service delivery, these are the bread and butter of developing nations. Most people have seen news reports or some kind of charity commercial attesting as much. But there is another, less obvious difference. I have lived in Zimbabwe and the United States of America. Zimbabwe is one of the poorest, least developed countries in the world. America is the single greatest nation that has ever been. These two countries represent the worst and the best that the world has to offer. The difference between these two nations is the difference between lawfulness and lawlessness. If you're a regular trumpet reader or a listener, you'll have heard us speak about lawlessness quite often. The administrative lawlessness destroying America, the political corruption, the moral degradation and economic quagmire. But for now, let's talk about something America does well, and that's driving. Even in developed countries, driving can be perilous and stressful. I've only driven in America and Zimbabwe, but many highly developed countries have reputations for terrible driving. America's road network, though, is a work of genius. It's the result of precise planning and logical thinking. The interstate system, the brainchild of President Dwight Eisenhower, is one of the world's most efficient travel mechanisms. And whether you're embarking on a cross-country road trip or simply commuting to work, driving is generally pretty easy in America. In Zimbabwe, it's closer to an extreme sport. The roads are treacherous, potholes are the rule, not the exception, testing even the most seasoned drivers. New roads haven't been built in decades, meaning heavy traffic is the order of the day. But what really makes the difference is the drivers themselves. The average Zimbabwean driver does not care about the law. During a traffic jam, it's common to see drivers circumvent traffic by driving on the shoulder of the road or by commandeering the lane for oncoming traffic while traffic is coming. Where there are only two lanes, drivers create fires. They know the police don't care. 90% of a policeman's job is doing traffic stops to check if drivers have purchased radio licenses. That's actually in Zimbabwe's constitution. The police enforce that law, but they don't enforce the traffic laws, the ones that keep you alive. As a result, In Zimbabwe, it's almost impossible to relax while driving. You might be in the outer lane, but that won't stop a car from driving off the shoulder next to you. You might be glad your road home has no heavy traffic, but that won't stop a car from entering your lane and driving headfirst into you unless you pull over and let it pass. Now, I'm not trying to say that developed countries are monolithic. There are good cities to drive in and bad cities to drive in. Even in the U.S., there are lawful areas and lawless areas. But the overall trend in America is one that began with more lawfulness than lawlessness. But for Zimbabweans, bad driving is normal. Lawlessness is normal. It wasn't this way while it was still named Southern Rhodesia. What's happening today is the result of a culture of lawlessness created by Zimbabwe's despotic leadership. It's the result of a constitution that gives the government as much power as possible. As a result, Zimbabweans are used to lawlessness. They are used to poor service delivery, potholed drones, a failing economy, living in silt, darkness, and poverty. They are used to unrestrained leaders who routinely lie, cheat, steal, and use violence. And as strange as it might sound, Americas are in an increasingly similar situation. America's Bible-based constitution was ratified in 1787 to guide the nation's government. It delineated the separation of powers, individual rights, and mechanisms for amendments. Most of my experiences in America were marked by trust in government institutions as they upheld the rule of law. The exceptions were a direct result of rulers promoting lawlessness so that they could take more power. Today, these rulers are normalizing lawlessness. The radical left, which controls media, entertainment, pop culture, it has branded conservative values as antiquated, racist, backward, primitive, defunct, irrelevant, and burdensome. The left has also expertly branded its own values as positive, progressive, tolerant, laughing, pro-equality, pro-choice. Right is wrong, up is down, and Americans are getting used to it. In 1970, 67% of Americans ages 25 to 49 were living with their spouse and one or more children younger than 18. That figure is now at 37%. More couples are unmarried, having children outside of wedlock, and engaging in homosexuality. Few Americans are religious, and unsurprisingly, 96% of atheists Support same-sex relations or quote-unquote marriage, America is getting used to lawlessness, just like Zimbabwe is. There is still a world of difference between America and Zimbabwe, but both are plagued by a deadly strain of lawlessness. Because of a marriage historical association with law and water, its trajectory is even more tragic. Americans are being bullied into accepting lawlessness. If you don't support genocidal groups like Hamas, if you aren't hit sabers murdering babies in their mother's womb, if you support judging people by the contents of their character and not the color of their skin, if you believe in traditional family, then you are lambasted as a racist, Zionist, sexist, bigoted, misogynistic, and hateful Nazi. It's like obeying the rules of the road and being attacked for it. And yet, too many Americans are happily casting aside the rules of the road. Too many support Hamas, abortion, Black Lives Matter. Too many support homosexuality, the destruction of the traditional family and genital mutilation of children. America is abandoning religion the Bible and God and supporting lawlessness instead. And worst of all, it's under the guise of promoting freedom from the law. The Apostle Peter says this is an erroneous idea of freedom. In 2 Peter 2, verse 19, he says, These people promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, To that he is enslaved. Our editor in chief, Mr Gerald Flurry, writes in his booklet on Peter's epistle These individuals promise freedom and liberty, but they never talk about the law of liberty. They offer a false freedom, a lawless liberty, which is really slavery. They talk about love, but it is a shallow, meaningless love not grounded in God's law. The United States Supreme Court has offered sodomites liberty. Instead they should be giving them the law of liberty. They themselves are servants of corruption and rebellion." The law is the only thing that offers us freedom. America's Bible-based constitution is the reason why it became the freest, single, greatest nation on earth. Its lawlessness is the reason why it's descending into a chaos that will make Zimbabwe's roads look tame by comparison. But you can change your life. You can apply God's law of liberty today and see how the rule of law can make your home and family as great as America once was.
2: is
3: Trumpet Hour.
2: Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. Thank you for staying with us. I'm Jeremiah Jacques and for our next segment here we'll examine a piece of technology that is small but mighty and almost ubiquitous in our high-tech world and that is the semiconductor. Semiconductors are vital components of items such as cars, computers, phones and aircraft, and they're also crucial for weapons manufacturing. So these things are virtually everywhere and we depend on them to a stunning degree. And as it turns out, the small nation of Taiwan plays a colossal role in the semiconductor industry. That's one huge reason why the tensions over Taiwan, with China vowing to seize the island, have such broad geopolitical implications. And we'll learn about the details of this now in this report from trumpet writer Ezekiel Malone.
4: With the upcoming January 13th Taiwanese presidential election, a lot of eyes are focused on Taipei. This is because Taiwan, though just a tiny island nation, is one of the most important countries in the world. There are several reasons for this. One is that Taiwan is among Asia's freest societies, with a system that could show China's citizens that there is a superior alternative to the Chinese Communist Party's authoritarianism. Another is that Taiwan's geographic location makes it a militarily valuable partner to America. But there is also another factor that is becoming increasingly important, semiconductors. To fully understand the importance of Taiwan, one must understand its role in what is known as the semiconductor war. Semiconductors, also known as microchips or integrated circuits, are the most important technology in our high-tech world. Journalist Cindy Palm said, quote, Semiconductor chips are the new oil in terms of our dependence on them, end quote. Microtrips are pieces of metal, generally silicon, with transistors carved onto them. A transistor is like a mini on and off switch that allows semiconductors to control electric currents. The more transistors a chip has, the more powerful it will be. Because of this, manufacturers are constantly working to decrease the size of transistors so that they can fit more onto a single chip. Engineer Gordon Moore, noticing patterns in the semiconductor manufacturing business, theorized that the number of transistors on the most advanced semiconductors will double every two years. This observation, known as Moore's Law, has stood the test of time. Moore's Law is vitally important concerning the semiconductor war because, even if a country's semiconductor technologies are only a few years behind, it still puts that country at a sizable disadvantage. Semiconductors are vitally important because they are essential in many everyday items, including cars, computers, phones, aircraft, etc. But semiconductors are also crucial for weapons manufacturing. The better the semiconductors a country has, the stronger its army can be. Since their invention in 1947, the United States has largely dominated the semiconductor market, but a vitally important player in this business is Taiwan. In the 1970s, Taiwan began working on plans to develop its own semiconductor market. Taipei asked Taiwanese engineers working abroad to return to the island and help get its industry off the ground around that time. Among this group was a man named Morris Chung. Chung had previously worked on semiconductors at Texas Instruments, an American firm that was one of the great original microchip manufacturers. But he had been struggling to find a good job when the Taiwanese government approached him asking him to head Taiwan's Industrial Technology Research Institute. He accepted. Without the business model this man thought up, Taiwan would not be nearly the semiconductor powerhouse it is today. While working in America, Chong met coworkers who wanted to start their own semiconductor business but didn't have the funds to build FABs, or microchip fabrication plants. FABs are intricately complicated and expensive facilities. Many bright scientists couldn't start semiconductor businesses for this reason. Chong thought up an idea that would solve this problem. He created his company, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC, whose goal was simply to make FABs. His plan? American manufacturers would design chips and send those designs over to Taiwan. Then TSMC, which had gone to the trouble of making fabs, would make and sell those chips. American scientists could now start companies that advanced semiconductor technology without having to worry about building and maintaining fabs. An American-Taiwanese semiconductor relationship blossomed. And as a result, Taiwan's semiconductor market took off. Since then, Taiwan has become the largest semiconductor producer in the world, making over 60% of the world's microchips and a stunning 92% of the most advanced types. This puts China at a major disadvantage in two main ways. Firstly, Taiwan is far more aligned with the U.S. than it is with China, giving America first choice of the world's most advanced chips. And secondly, China is now dependent on Taiwan for chips, and Taiwan is dependent on America. This makes Beijing indirectly dependent on its greatest enemy. As a result, China has worked desperately to build its own semiconductor industry, regardless of U.S. attempts to hinder it. Beijing went so far as to illegally buy American chips for its own uses and worked to steal American semiconductor designs. In 2022, the Biden administration responded to this with the Chips and Science Act, which not only bans U.S. chip makers from working with China, but bans any country that works with America from sharing semiconductor business with China. This will stunt Beijing's advanced chip production and therefore its ability to grow militarily as quickly as it would like to. However, China is attempting to use these restrictions to grow its global influence. In 2021, Trumpet writer Josue Michels wrote, quote, If China could loosen itself from these chip restrictions and other constraints holding it back, it would become almost unstoppable. To achieve this goal, China is calling for an alliance against the U.S., rallying support from North Korea, Serbia, Burkina Faso, Zimbabwe, Cuba, and Russia, end quote. At present, this anti-U.S. block that China and Russia are attempting to build does not have the technological know-how to rival America and its partners in terms of chip-making. But adding Taiwan to the group could change all of that. Because of Taiwan's semiconductor industry, Taiwan's fall, a trend Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has forecast for decades, could fit into several Bible prophecies. Isaiah 23 and Ezekiel 27 prophesy that the aforementioned global alliance that China and Russia are calling for will soon form and be a formidable force. It will even pull the nations of Europe away from America and into a temporary allegiance with Asia. Together, they will besiege the U.S. economically. Ezekiel 27 verse 6 even specifies that the, quote, Isles of Kittim, which is modern-day China, will be a trade partner of a coming European power during this siege. Taiwan's fall will further show American weakness. This could contribute to a worldwide move away from the U.S. towards powers like the European Union and Russo-China, a prophesied trend. Now, it should be noted that some believe Taiwan's fall, whether militarily or diplomatically, would not ensure Chinese control of TSMC. This is because even if China controlled Taiwan, it would still need the help of many other nations in the supply chain to continue TSMC's market. The Chips and Science Act would work against this, but Bible prophecy tells us that most of the world, including the Europeans, are about to turn on the United States. It is very possible that major powers in the semiconductor market will forsake America's chip restrictions on China, giving a Taiwan-controlling Beijing vast control of the world's semiconductor supply. It would be difficult to sustain the market without America, but China has already shown itself capable of adapting and advancing in ways that have confounded analysts countless times over the decades. Should it find a way to keep its enemy away from one of the most important technologies in the world, it would be absolutely detrimental to America, both socially and militarily. Another prophecy Taiwan's fall could contribute to is the implied technological advanced weaponry of the kings of the East. Jeremiah 50 describes this coming Asian axis. The end of verse 9 says that in battle, quote, Their arrow shall be as of a mighty expert man. None shall return in vain. End quote. Russia and China in Prophecy says about this verse, quote, The end of the verse illustrates how effectively the attack will be without any munitions spent in vain. End quote. Not a single Asian munition will be spent in vain. This requires incredible precision and is seemingly impossible with Asia's current weaponry. In addition, the great speed of these kings speaks to a stunning level of technological advancement that they will obtain. After Asia and Europe work together to besiege America, the Bible makes clear that they will turn against each other. The Asians are prophesied to conquer a German-led Europe, Latin America, and Middle East, and they will do so very quickly. This colossal war, against Europe mainly, will make up what is referred to in the Bible as the Day of the Lord. We know from Isaiah 34 verse 8 and Ezekiel 4 verse 6 that this day of the Lord will last one year overall. Revelation 9 divides this year into three woes. The first woe, prophesied in verses 1 through 11, consists of a German-led Europe invading Asia. Verse 5 specifies that this invasion will last five months. For the rest of the year, Asia will be on the offensive, making up the second woe. Several prophecies show that Asia will utterly destroy this European alliance. So, based on the timeline given in the Bible, we can know that Asia will destroy this European, Latin American, Middle Eastern power in just seven months. In this short time frame, this army will kill one third of mankind, according to verse 18. Without the most advanced weaponry or semiconductors in the world, this would seemingly be impossible. So, in all, we can see why Taiwan is so important. Because of its semiconductor market, its fall could be detrimental to not just the United States. But to the entire world,
1: it's time
2: for today's last word. Our last word today examines the inspiring example of NFL legend Mike Ditka and a lesson from his leadership that's really applicable to us all. For this, we'll turn to Mr. Grant Turgeon.
1: Mike Ditka is a Chicago Bears football legend. As a player in the National Football League from 1961 to 1972, he practically invented the tight end position as we know it today. A potent mix of bruising, blocking, and elegant pass catching stationed tight to the end of the offensive line. Iron Mike grew up in the blue-collar town of Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. His father, a Marine, instilled respect and toughness in him. In high school, college, and the NFL, he built a reputation in the world's toughest team sport for seeking contact and always hitting hard. He pushed himself to play through injuries such as a dislocated shoulder, a dislocated foot, and a broken jaw. While I certainly don't recommend treating your body this way, the dedication displayed by Mike Ditka is still admirable. As a player, Ditka was a world champion in 1963 with the Chicago Bears and in 1972 with the Dallas Cowboys. He retired after the latter championship and transitioned smoothly into coaching from 1973 to 1999. He won the Super Bowl as an assistant coach with the Cowboys in 1978 and as the head coach of the Bears in 1986. As a player and as a coach, Mike Ditka always held himself and others accountable. In the book, The Blood and Guts, How Tight Ends Save Football, author Tyler Dunn writes, In 1982, Ditka shuffled from Dallas back to Chicago where his name became synonymous with football itself on a team loaded with characters. Ditka was larger than life in winning six division titles over 10 years. The 85 bears remain one of the greatest teams of all time. All along one principle guided Ditka. He played as hard as he could for as long as he could. So as a coach, demanded the same thing from every player. Ron Rivera lived it. He spent his entire nine-year career as a linebacker playing for Ditka and as the team's union rep says the two developed a unique relationship. They'd meet one-on-one every two weeks. Training camps under Ditka were as ruthless as one could imagine from a disciple of both George Hallis and Tom Landry. The Bears were in pads twice a day for a good eight weeks. After one merciless practice, Rivera felt compelled to speak up. He just ripped us, Rivera says. It was a hot, tough day, and we were dragging. He had this thing. Fatigue makes cowards out of all of us. That's one of the things he'd always grind on us about. So afterwards... It was one of those days I had to go in and talk to him about some general stuff. And I said to him, Coach, I've got to ask you something. Why are you so hard on us? What's that all about? He looked at me and said, Ronnie, I would never ask you guys to do anything I couldn't do as a player because I believe you guys can do it. And that's the whole point. A true leader must lead from the front by example. When a leader has pushed himself to the brink and beyond, he has every right to demand the same level of effort from his followers. Now, of course, football and Christianity are two very different subjects, but in one way, they are quite similar. True Christianity is a very challenging way of life. Our leader expects a whole lot from us. 1 Peter 2 verse 21 says that Christ suffered, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Christ strained, strived, and suffered to stay perfect for 33 and a half years. He endured an agonizing scourging and crucifixion to pay for our sins. Through it all, he maintained an iron will. He was absolutely determined to do whatever necessary to give us a chance to receive eternal life and enter God's family. Christ had to have an iron will to push himself through all the hard persecution, through all the suffering, to do hard things. He needed an iron will. That's something that Mike Ditka also possessed. Every great leader has an iron will and absolutely cannot be shaken away from fulfilling his goals. But just think about the life of Christ and how hard his job was as the Savior of all mankind. He needed an iron will to stay the course no matter what. This is an article from thetrumpet.com back in 2007 titled, I Need to Change This by Philadelphia trumpet managing editor, Joel Hilliker. And he writes, perhaps the most remarkable quality about God that separates him from us is the fact that he always follows through with his plans. When we make a resolution, we often break it. When God makes a resolution, he always keeps it. When we resolve to do something or change something, we often fail When God resolves to do something, fulfill something, accomplish something, he always sees it through. And as Mr. Hilliker writes here, God has an uncompromising, unbending, unbreakable iron will. We can absolutely trust God because of his iron will. Christ has an iron will. Christ demands that we have an iron will so we can work just as hard as Christ did and overcome the devil just like he did. We need that iron will. It's absolutely essential. The late educator Herbert W. Armstrong defined godly character this way. Perfect, holy, and righteous character is the ability to come to discern the true and right way from the false to make voluntarily a full and unconditional surrender to God and his perfect way, to yield to be conquered by God, to determine even against temptation or self-desire to live and to do the right. And even then such holy character is the gift of God. It comes by yielding to God to instill his law, God's right way of life, within the entity who so decides and wills. Mr. Hilliker explains here in this article, I need to change this. It seems so simple, but for us with human nature, it can be fiendishly difficult. How often do we say, yes, I want to do this. It's right. It will make God happy and me happy, but then fail to follow through. How often do we say, yes, I want to avoid this, it's wrong, it will hurt me, it will hurt my mind or my health, but then fail to follow through? How often, when temptation or self-desire arises, do we live and do the wrong? How much easier would our lives be if we could just set ourselves that we will do this and won't do that, and then follow through exactly As God does, you can study Romans chapter seven, where the apostle Paul talks about the war of the wills and how hard it was for him to subject his human will to God's will. It is difficult to have an iron will totally submitted to God, where we will obey God no matter what. But remember, Christ set the example. He achieved perfection, and that's the example we must follow. He expects us to follow that example and do what he did. We have to take the time to train our will. Mr. Hilliker gives some practical ways that we can try to do this. We do need to have something pretty much every day that we should do, that we consider difficult, whether it's getting out of bed at a certain time, obviously taking care of the spiritual priorities like prayer and Bible study can be a challenge sometimes, but those things need to be consistent 30 minutes to an hour or more every day. But we have to do those hard things. We have to set our will to do the things that we don't want to do because Christ did it. You know, a lesser example, obviously, but Mike Ditka did it too. We all can set our will and do those hard things, and that's what we're expected to do. Mr. Hilliker writes God commands us to become perfect, even as he is perfect. He is working to recreate himself in us. This demands that we be skilled at making changes in our lives, not just making resolutions and breaking them a few days later, but constantly gaining ground as we fight our way toward godly perfection. For more information, request a free copy of Philadelphia Church of God, Pastor General Gerald Flurry's free booklet, How to Be an Overcomer. You can get a free copy at thetrumpet.com. Well, we are now coming to the end
2: of this episode of Trumpet Hour. Please check out our show notes for today's episode on thetrumpet.com to find links to the articles that today's reports were based on and for links to the other pieces of literature mentioned in the episode. Please send us any comments or questions you may have about today's episode. The address is letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to my guests, Mihailo Zekic, Rafaro Manyepa, Ezekiel Malone, and Mr. Grant Turgeon. Thanks also to Isaac Lorenz and Nicholas Irwin for helping with the audio work for today's episode. And thanks very much to you, the listener, for joining us today. Until next time, keep watching your world.